all of us are very aware there's a huge difference in life between tidying up and cleaning. You know, if mum or dad says to you, tidy your room, it might mean throwing your trainers into the wardrobe, pulling the duvet onto your bed and picking a few sweetie wrappers off the floor. It disguises the mess and it's a very quick fix. But if the hoover and the bin bags come out, then there's cleaning of an entirely different order. It means lifting rugs, getting in behind your bed. Why is it there's always so much dust behind the bed? It just seems to be the way there is, isn't it? Throwing out what's not needed. Cleaning goes deeper than tidying. All of us know that from our own experiences in life, even in different areas, whether it be the full valley that you give your car that gets into every nook and cranny and has it gleaming new on the inside and the out, or whether it be that embarrassing, you've offered someone a lift and suddenly realize your car's a tip and you suddenly throw a few things in the bin and hope that everything's going to be all right, feeling totally embarrassed. In the first of these Old Testament festivals that we're going to be looking at today, we're going to consider in Leviticus 16 that there's much more than a tidy up going on, but there's a deep clean. I'm going to ask five questions today, and all these questions are so simple that the boys and girls are going to be able to answer them by the end as well. So simple, all from Leviticus 16. Five questions about the Day of Atonement. Question number one, when was it? When was it? When did the Day of Atonement take place? That's a great question, and it actually has got three answers. Yes, three. Here's the first one. Have a look at verse 29, and you get the first of your answers. Verse 29 tells us, on the 10th day of the 7th month in the Jewish calendar. Jewish calendar moves every year. So in actual fact, that was last week. On the 28th of September last week was the Jewish Day of Atonement. The second answer is that it was to be celebrated. Look at verse 29 again. Celebrated every single year without fail. The words we know tells without fail says it was to be a lasting ordinance. And boys and girls, that simply means it was never, ever to be forgotten. Every year without fail, it was to be celebrated. Always remember, the most important feast in the Jewish calendar. The third answer to the question, when was it? Well, it was only to be celebrated at the exact time and in the precise way that God had said. This is where we need to read again together. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. That's pretty important, isn't it? If he was to get this wrong, Aaron would die. You see, it all goes back to a few chapters before in Leviticus chapter 10 where something shocking happened. Two of Aaron's other sons, Nadab and Abihu, went into the tabernacle and carried charcoal and incense to give a lovely sweet smell, lovely fumes that came off it, but God had not asked for it, and they were both struck down dead. All that's been said here is God's people are only to come before God in God's way. And that is why we need to hear what's being said in Leviticus 16 so clearly. For in the Day of Atonement, all the instructions given in this chapter are there to bring safety to Aaron so that he would not be consumed by God's anger, but also that he could be worshipped in the way that he said. Let me make it really clear today. 
We can't just rock up to worship in whatever way we feel like it. Not everything in life is worship. It has to be asked for and directed to us by God. God is holy, and we cannot just worship him any old way we feel like it. It's a matter of life and death. Question two, where was it to happen? Well, the Israelites were still in the desert, making their way to the promised land, and the tabernacle had been constructed as a great mobile worship center. You know, we, well, I was going to say we come every week, but we haven't been recently. We come to this building, and this is a permanent structure that they come to to worship. But in those days, because they were on a journey, they had a huge tent which they brought with them that they set up wherever they stopped. And right at the heart of this tent that was set up was the most holy place. It was a cube shape known as the Holy of Holies or the most holy place, the NIV puts it. And inside that most holy place was the most important piece of furniture that the Jews owned. It was a box called the Ark of the Covenant. And it was held behind the, the biggest curtain that you could ever imagine. The Ark of the Covenant was a special box, but carved in beautiful detail on top of this box were these magnificent cherubim. Now, some of us have maybe sung the word cherubim in some of the older hymns, and maybe we didn't really know what we were singing about. But cherubim are these incredible angelic angel figures with these huge wings. You can see them depicted there. And their wings spread over this Ark, this box. And some of you who know your Bibles well will know this isn't the first time that the cherubim have appeared in the Bible. The last time you read of the cherubim was in Genesis and chapter 3, where the cherubim were placed at the entrance to the Garden of Eden to stop sinful men and women going back in because Adam and Eve had sinned and they were pushed out. These cherubim, these great angelic figures, were signs of God's judgment that God could not be with sinners anymore. And so here, in picture form, like you would do with a P1 class drawing, it means you just can't come near God wherever you feel like it. But also between these two great angelic beings, there was also a flat area, the, the top of the box. And it was known as the mercy seat, or verse 2 in our Bibles call it the atonement cover. And this is a great picture for us today because there were those two angels who say loud and clear to us, judgment comes from God because of our sin. You're a sinner. Don't come near. And yet at the other side, on the top of this box, was this place of mercy where Aaron was allowed to come on behalf of the people and find God's forgiveness. And you will see in Leviticus 16, verse 2, that God says very clearly, he will meet with the high priest there. That's where I'll meet you. That is where I will meet with you. God says he will appear to Aaron in the cloud over the atonement cover. And what God is saying, that he would come down to this particular place between these symbols of his judgment, but also it's going to be a place of mercy. Keep those two words in mind, a place of mercy and judgment. So once a year, Aaron the high priest was to meet God right there. It was on the day of atonement he was to meet God right there, when humanity, who deserved God's judgment, could now find mercy. Question two was, where was all this to happen? In the most holy place, where the high priest met with God, all alone behind the curtain, 
in a place of judgment and mercy. Question three, we're rattling through them quickly. How did the high priest have to do it? How did the high priest do it? Well, Leviticus 16 verses 3 and 4 tells us, have a look at those verses and it tells us very clearly that Aaron was to wear a very special set of clothes. He was to put on a shirt, shorts, a sash, hat, all made of linen, pure and white. Now, that's not going to mean very much to us here today in Macrofelt as it did to the people of Israel way back in Exodus 28 where you have a description of what the high priest was to wear on any given day. Boys and girls, I would know you would be able to identify a fireman or a policeman or maybe even occasionally a minister with a collar or whatever. You, know, you can identify people often by the clothes they wear or what shop they work in by the clothes that they actually wear. You would have been able to identify the high priest around the camp because in Exodus 28, he wore the most stunning of clothes. Let me tell you what it says in Exodus 28. He wore flamboyant colors, multicolored, adorned all over with jewels, precious stones, special gold braiding and chains. You know, if the high priest walked around, you'd all say, hey, there he is, there he is. Whoa, look at him, wow. And as the high priest moved around the camp, you would have been in awe at what he was wearing. In my college days in Scotland, our principal's wife always wore the most outrageous clothes at any college gathering, at Christmas or the graduation or some special. Oh, and my mate Kenny from Glasgow would always nudge me and say, Hey, Luchi, would you check out the leopard skins today? And there she was. As sure as anything, she stood out from the rest. Well, here was the high priest. And as he went round the camp, you'd have nudged, hey, look at the kit that guy's wearing. Whoa, you couldn't have missed him. His clothes were so stunning that he looked like a king amongst men. But then you're asking yourself, well, hold on, David. If that's what he was to wear, why isn't he asked to wear those clothes on the Day of Atonement? Why do verses 2 and 3 say he's got to wear the really ordinary white clothes that are on the screen there today? Well, on the festival day, he was to look ordinary. In fact, if he walked around the camp on that day, he just looked like everybody else. In fact, you wouldn't have even batted an eyelid. You wouldn't have recognized him. He looked like the ordinary working man around the camp. Nothing to stand on like. He was a servant. He looked like a servant. On that day that he was to come before God, he didn't look like a king. He came as a servant. Stripped of all his glory, stripped of all his finery, he looked nothing like a king. But God had told him how to come. For as Aaron entered God's presence in the most holy place, he did not come as a king, he came as a servant. He came humbly, he came as a man. On any other day of the year, Aaron was a walking reminder around the camp, whoa, God and his greatness, whoa, this guy looks like a king. But now he was an ordinary man, a sinner, going into the presence of an incredibly extraordinary God. Stripped of all that was fashionable and honorable, and he comes simply, seeking forgiveness. Question four. What was Aaron to do on the Day of Atonement? Only two questions left. Here's question four. What was Aaron to do on the Day of Atonement? Well, the rest of Leviticus 16 outlines what Aaron was to do. And as I read it, I'm sure you picked up that it's repeated a number of occasions. What he was to do, and then it says how he did it. 
Leviticus 16 verse 6 reminds us that despite his important position, he still needed to bring a bull as a sacrifice for his own sin. That's really important to remember because no one, no priest, no human priest comes without sin. He has to make atonement for his own sin, first of all. Then the sins of his family. He knows his wider family has sinned. So then he goes in, verse 11, he sacrifices a bull. And then he gets some of the blood from the bull and he sprinkles it seven times into the Holy of Holies as if it were to cleanse it by blood. This human priest was not their savior. Only God could forgive sin. And then he turned his attention to the sins of the people. Look at verse 15. One of the two goats that was set aside as a sacrifice for sin, he was to take it and he was to kill it. And then he came before God carrying the blood of that goat into God's presence on behalf of the people. He did the same thing again. This is on behalf of the people of God who have sinned against you again, God. But that wasn't the end. Now, the most entertaining and I think all the families and all the boys and girls who had been there in the devil, this would have been the moment that they've all been waiting for. Every year, if they'd seen it last year, they'd been waiting for this moment. Because in 1970s, the quote came for the first time, whenever the BBC and Blue Peter and all that was going, never work with children or animals. Well, here is the moment when the high priest was to take a live goat, and I know how he did it, because goats... Goats aren't, well, they're fairly big and they're fairly mobile and they don't like being handled. He had to take this goat and he probably was all arms and legs trying to control this goat. Maybe even he put his legs around it to hold it. And look at verse 20 to 21. A live goat who's just seen its mate taken off and killed. Now, I don't know whether goat's brains are big or not, but I'm quite sure the goat's thinking to itself, hold on, what happened to that one? What's he going to do? What's this boy going to do with me? But Aaron then takes this goat and he places both hands on top of the goat. And he begins to confess every known sin of the Israelites, transferring that sin from Israel onto this poor goat. Now you can imagine it. You can hear him. Lord our God, we confess to you that we have not loved you as we should. Everyone's sitting there thinking, yeah, well, that's me. I've not loved God as I should. Lord, you've saved us from Egypt, but we have made other gods to worship you. We have forgotten you. Everyone's not, oh, we've, how often we forget our God. We have been too quick to forget you, too slow to praise you. We haven't said thanks to you for ages. Lord, we've broken your law. We've stolen from each other. We've spoken harshly about other people in the camp. We've lusted We've coveted, we've been greedy, we've been proud, thinking ourselves better than the other people. We've been rude and we've been awkward, we've been stubborn. And on, and on he would go. I don't know how long he prayed for, but I'm sure it was a long prayer. And this goat is wriggling and his hands remain firm on this goat's head. Every sin. And I'm sure as you gathered and listened in, you'd have been standing there thinking, oh yeah, how does, how does, he, know what I, how does he know what I've done? How, how does this guy know my heart? as every sin on this goat was laid. But what is going on here? Aaron was, as it were, transferring the nation's sin, the sin of the whole people of God, onto this goat, their guilt, their shame, their sins, now laid upon this creature. This is a sin-laden creature now. And instead of this one being killed, this one is sent away. Look at verse 22. This goat will carry on itself all the sins to a remote place 
and a man shall release it in the wilderness. I was joking with someone recently. I know somebody who's a pair of goats, and the goats are named Flymo and Strimmer. But that was a good name for a pair of goats, eh? Flymo and Strimmer. Well, this goat was known as Scapegoat. And this scapegoat was led by a man who had the job of taking this goat far, far away. Now, I would imagine that all the kids in the camp went running after this man who was carrying the goat to see how he was getting on with the goat for a start. And that I watched from the edge of the camp and seen him go, can you still see? I can still see. Can you still see? I can still see him. Where is it? Oh, he's having trouble with that thing now. And then, can you still? I can. And then suddenly, on the horizon, can you see him? I can't see him. He's gone. He's gone. I, I can't see him. Every sin removed. Never to be brought back again. Gone. Forever. And yet, the man comes back, maybe days later. The man comes back, no goat, no sin, gone. Which leads me to my last question. Why? Why all of this? Why all of this strange, weird procedure with goats and bulls and rams and blood and boxes and cherubim? Why? Well, if you read Leviticus 16 really carefully, you'll have seen one word that appears more than any. On at least nine occasions in my version, I think it happens 13 in some other versions, is the word sin. Because you see, sin makes us an enemy of God. John Bunyan once described sin as punching God repeatedly in the face. And every time you sin or I sin, it's like we punch God in the face. We're not respecting his rules. We don't take him at his word. We break his law. We punch him in the face again and again and again. And you know what would happen if someone continually punched you in the face? You would put them down for good. And that's what our God should have done. But here on this day of atonement, atonement means simply this, to put something that was wrong right again. When sin comes into our lives, God withdraws his presence. And so the question that we all need to answer today is what will it take to make atonement with God? Well, the answers we find today are this. We can't do it on our own. We can't just show up and make atonement in our own way, in our own time, whenever we feel like it. It's got to be God's way. We have to do it in the way that God has shown us and invited to us. We have also learned that it takes someone who looked like a king to become a servant in order to approach God and enter his presence humbly. We have discovered through our questions and answers that God can be found in the most holy place, in a place where there's judgment for sin and mercy towards the sinner. All of this requires a priest who comes confessing his sin and with a blood sacrifice. You see, before God, sin is so serious, someone, somebody's got to pay for it. Somebody's got to pay for it. Because the wages of sin is death. 
It always takes the life of another to pay for the sin of one. If we sin without forgiveness, we are separated from God forever. But if we sin and find that someone or something has died in our place, then we must be desperate to hold on to that, for that is our only way of atonement. Blood must be shed. A sacrifice on our behalf must be made. Your sin is oh so serious, and either you die for it and pay for it yourself, or someone pays for it on your behalf. But friends, as we finish today, all of this is only a dress rehearsal for the main event that is to come. For Aaron died, and other high priests came and went. The people of Israel settled in their land, and their faithfulness ebbed and flowed. (coughs) But one day, 1,500 years later, the main event took place. As Jesus Christ entered the world, taking on the role as the great high priest, He was not a son of Aaron, but he did leave the royal courts of his father. He was a king by right, but he comes and he lays aside his royal robes and his heavenly identity and bundled tight in cheap strips of white linen, he's laid in a manger and he's surrounded by bulls and goats and rams. That's what we call Christmas. And he has the look of a servant as he grows up. He looks nothing like a king. But as he goes about his ordinary day-to-day life, no one can find fault with him. No one can find fault with his Jesus. He does not need to make atonement for his own sins because he has none. And yet at the central point in this whole story, he's nailed to a cross where he represents man before God and his blood is poured out as a sacrificed animal. And he enters the most holy place where judgment and mercy meet in the body and blood of our scapegoat, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is consumed by God's wrath in the presence of God's judgment. And at that moment, he cries out in pain and gives up his spirit, the curtain in the temple, just a couple of miles away across the city of Jerusalem that separates the terrifying presence of God from sinful mankind is ripped and stretched from top to bottom. God does it. No man could do it from top to bottom. From top to bottom, God does it. So mankind can enter into God's presence once again. Jesus has opened up a new and a living way, as Hebrews talks about. Atonement has been made. Jesus is the great high priest, but he's also the sacrifice. It's literally he comes down as the priest and lays himself on the altar and is killed. But it doesn't end there. Because just as there was a goat sacrificed for sin, there was also a live goat that was sent away. And our Lord Jesus still lives. And our sacrifice saviour, he rose again. But the question for all of us, have we laid our hands on Jesus or laid our hearts, as it were, on Jesus? Have we confessed our sin and laid our hands on him, giving up all of it, all our feelings, our past, our present, our future, and transferring our guilt, our shame onto Jesus' sacrifice at the cross, and our living Savior, who stands in heaven even today, interceding for people like us. The great undying priest who lives forever to intercede for you and for me. Psalm 133, verse 12, reminds us he takes our sins 
and casts it away as far as the east is from the west. <clears throat> and he remembers our sin. And boy, it's gone. He's taken it far, far away. Disappearing like the scapegoat forever over the horizon. <clears throat> Why blood? Why the death of one for the salvation of another? Because of your sin. Because of mine. But see it here and lay it on Christ. It can be cleansed and transferred and removed forever. Friends, I reckon most of us have come to church and we often go about our daily lives thinking we're not that bad. Even those of us who have been Christians for years, we go about it thinking we're not that bad and we've turned up again in Union Road today and we just feel we're in need of a bit of a tidy up. No. We're in need of the deepest cleansing. The heavenly king who became an earthly servant the high priest who became a sacrifice made in blood, the sinless saviour who became our sin-carrying substitute. Friends, only Jesus can make the impossible possible. He's the only one. You have no chance on your own. You'll drop dead in a second when confronted with God and sent to hell forever unless we lay it all, all our sin on Jesus Christ the only substitute and scapegoat and sacrifice for our sin. So let this truth mark out this season of thanksgiving in each of our hearts and may it give us a joy that can never be taken away for our sins are dealt with. Living God, we know you've called us not to a tidy up, but to a clean up. A clean up that we are completely incapable of. A clean up of such depth. A clean up of sin and guilt and shame. A clean up of deep disappointments and achings and longings. And we pray that you would enable us to lay our hands on Christ to lay our hearts in him and confess it all and pour it out, that you would take it all as you have done at the cross, carrying it away, rising again, remembering it no more, and now seated and speaking for us. All gone, no more to pay, relieved and released in Christ forever. Father, we pray for all our people in Union Road today, present with us in the building here at home watching it, struggling with sin and temptation, Others with doubts and fears. Some assured or lack of assurance. Some who've just turned up for the tidying up when in reality they know that they're as guilty as hell. But Father, only it's with Jesus we can come before you and enter heaven. Father, in this month of thanksgiving, may it start and end with Christ, giver of every good gift from the grains that are planted to the harvest that is reaped. O oh Lord Jesus, the one of heaven and the cross, the grave and the throne, may we stop fiddling about in our faith and rest entirely, every ounce of energy upon this Christ. For in him alone our hope is found. Amen.